So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today I'm joined by Jacob Canfield, host of the Crypto Traders podcast. And we get into cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and trading and investing. He is a well-known trader, number one ranked on TradingView. And we talk about the difference of trading and investing. We talk about how trading seems to line up with human sentiment of greed and fear and how actually using technical analysis and Fibonacci's can predict where the markets are. Talk about the differences. We talk about how the average person should look at this, especially if they want to try and time the markets and use some technical analysis. Some really, really good information from one of the best traders out in the space today. So let's go ahead and just jump right into it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, I am joined by Jacob Canfield. He is from uh, Signal Profits. He's also the host of the Crypto Traders podcast. Um, he's someone that I've been following a long time. He's a master of technical analysis and trading. And so, Jacob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. Been uh, been a while. We've been talking about doing a podcast together for uh, about a year now. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad we've. <laughs> I'm surprised it's taken so long. I'm glad we're finally doing that. Uh, so, Jacob. So, I've been working with you for a year and a half, and I know you really well. But for those that don't know who you are, why don't you just give us a little bit of background on um, how you got to this uh, space that you're working in and what you're working on right now? Well, I've been doing technical analysis for about a decade, a little bit longer, uh, but, but full-time professionally for about the last three to four years. I started out in options back in college. I took an options trading course. Uh, I've always had a really, really big heart and passion for fundamental analysis. Uh, I'm, I myself am, am a technologist, a futurist. Uh, I really love emerging technologies. I've always been on the cutting edge as far as adoption. Uh, so, you know, computers, uh, the iPhone, I was like one of the first in line for an iPhone. And, uh, and so my approach is really kind of just investing and trading things that I have intimate knowledge about. Um, I own a mobile application development company, so I know the ins and outs of, of uh, mobile applications, Apple, um, technology like that, but I also have a background in healthcare. So those have kind of been like my cross hybrid of, of my paths. I love e-commerce, the healthcare wellness industry, and then uh, on the technology and the trading side, um, for me, it's all about quantifiable data, backtesting strategies, and uh, trading just boils down to finding edges that are greater than 50% and then employing those edges over a, a long period of time. Because if you have an edge that works better than 50%, uh, essentially, you're going to make money in the long run. It's just kind of probability and statistics. And so that's kind of how I approach the market. I find strong fundamental projects, and then I like to trade them. Um, and try and outperform just a buy and hold strategy. So that's kind of how I approach pretty much all of my um, investing thesis or trading thesis. Yeah, that's good. Um, so it's it, you know you bring up the difference of investing and trading, and and uh, you talked about how you like to have a fundamental knowledge of it and then trade against it. Um, maybe for a lot of people that aren't really sure, what what's what do you think is the difference between trading and investing? Because sometimes those lines get blurred. Yeah, I just I just tweeted this today. I said, uh, don't trade like an investor and don't invest like a trader. Uh, there are pretty big fundamental differences between the two. 
And I would say the biggest one is time commitment. Uh, being a trader, and there's different variations and different degrees of trading, whether, I mean, and there's a, a thousand different methods and strategies for trading, uh, whether you're short-term, long-term, scalping, swing trading, uh, there's all kinds of different approaches. I mean, it, the approaches are infinitesimal, uh, or sorry, infinite, based on all the different angles you can take. But the really big difference is time commitment. Investing is kind of a one-time thing. Uh, you buy and then you hold for uh, based on your thesis. If your th thesis is correct, like Warren Buffett, he says, you know, I invested, I invest in all of these companies because I believe in the American economy. So, you know, if you if you don't think the stock market's going to go up, you essentially don't think that the American economy is going to go up. And so that's his investing thesis, and that's how it kind of approaches it. But from a trader's standpoint, you don't really care too much about the the backstory, the investing, all that stuff. It's really just kind of a time frame preference. You know, are you short term, mid term, long term? And once you have that kind of thesis behind it, then all else kind of applies. But the other aspect of trading is, that, that I think is a really big fundamental difference is skill set. Uh, being a skillful trader and being a profitable trader is incredibly difficult. There was a study done on the IQ of traders, and they say that people that go into trading have some of the highest IQs of the world. But there's a rule that basically 90% of traders fail. And so when you have a, a group of people that have already a really high IQ and of those group of people, only 10% will actually succeed, uh, it makes it a very, very competitive marketplace. It's very fierce. And so it's really hard to make money as a trader. And so it, it takes a long time to become good and profitable at trading. And what I also see the difference between investing and trading is that it, most people, they stop trying to trade after about a year. Most people lose all of their money within a year or a lot, majority of their money after about a year. And then they just kind of switch over to investing because it's a lot easier. And it's, you know, because trading does take time to become good at it. But what we call that, you know, what we call the first year to three years is tuition. Just like anything, it takes time to get good. And with trading, the first three years, all the money that you give to the market, uh, to all the other people who've been there 10, 15, 20 years, uh, that's the tuition to really learn how to trade over the long term. So time preference, skill set, um, and just, uh, just, I mean, I think those are the two biggest differentiators between investing and trading. But with investing, if you're investing in like a fundamental ideology, let's say Bitcoin, then your time horizon is drastically different than a trade. Your time horizon goes, you know, then goes up to maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years, kind of like investing in um, Ford or Amazon or Apple. If you, if you believe that the technology is here to stay for, you know, uh, an indefinite period of time, then your investing thesis still holds true. The fundamentals still hold true that it's a valuable, valuable company, kind of no matter which way the market moves, no matter how far your drawdown is. And so I think that's the, that's the biggest difference between the two. But for me, I try to, try, I try to employ kind of a, a combination approach of fundamental and technical. I want to trade things that I believe are emerging technologies because A, it's got the volume, B, it's got the hype. Um, you know, so that, that's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm looking for things that people are buying or things that people are going to want to buy. And I have a, I have a combination approach where, you know, part of my money is an investing strategy, but I still think that, and we talked about this before, investing and trading has this blurred line where, uh, you know, you can be a, an investor, but you also are a trader because A, you want to have a good entry. You don't want to invest at the top of a massive rally um, where, you know, 
every technical indicator is showing that it's supposed to, you know, have a correction or, or downside. And I, and I don't like to invest into, uh, you know, very, very poor macroeconomic structure, meaning, uh, you know, what's going on with the Federal Reserve, what's going on with all, all the geopolitical stuff around the world is showing that, you know, the dollar might strengthen, showing stocks might be going to, I don't want to invest into a climate like that. So, I like to time it with technicals, but I like to time my uh, position trades, meaning my longer term investments into uh, a, like a really strong downtrend uh, into a fundamental project, right? Like if, if Amazon drops 45, 50%, I'm not going to blink at buying it because the fundamentals don't change from the week before to the week after. It's, it's you know, right. I'd rather buy into blood rather than buying into euphoria onto my fundamental and, you know, beliefs are my fundamental project. Yeah. So I think it, it, I think I, what you're saying though, is it really depends on the specific asset class itself. So um, when you're talking about more broader based assets, like Amazon, for example, there's strong fundamentals, meaning assets, cash flow, returns on cash flow, earnings, things like that. And so uh, the fundamentals, as you say, don't change, although the price could change. So then technically, um, that gives you good entries. But I think when you get into stuff like cryptocurrencies, for example, you don't have those fundamentals. So you, there is no cash flow, uh, there is no assets, earnings, etc. And so then do you think that's really all more speculation or trading? I mean, technically, that's not investing, right? It, it's, it, I, I would think it's almost all speculation that it's going to be up, uh, go up in value in the future. Yeah, and I think, I think a, an important point is to segregate Bitcoin from the rest of the market. I think that Bitcoin does have fundamentals. It has a value proposition and it does have, uh, you can actually calculate how much each Bitcoin is worth based on the electricity consumption that it takes to actually produce one Bitcoin and to power the Bitcoin network. So there is some, there is some you know, uh, fundamental value in what you can define with Bitcoin. And also what is Bitcoin kind of competing against and, and what is its long-term speculative value? And, uh, you know, for Bitcoin, it's the entire, you know, monetary supply, any currency can go into Bitcoin, it's this alternative asset class. And so that has that you kind of have to segregate that from the rest of the cryptocurrency market. But yes, uh, you know, people and, and a very good example is Ripple, Ripple, the company has cash flow, it has earnings, but you're not buying equity into Ripple, you're buying the XRP token, which used to be called Ripple, but now it's just called XRP. But XRP has really no fundamental uh, basis for it other than it's a use case for maybe money remittance or uh, money transfers across the world. Uh, and so that one, you can't really put much of a fundamental thesis behind it. There's nothing you can really measure it on, and especially because it's a centrally controlled entity uh, with, as far as like supply is concerned, Ripple controls 60% of it. So with that, I base almost all of my investing or trading decisions on technical indicators. And so for me, technicals are a, the benchmark for what I should base all of my decisions for cryptocurrency on because uh, who controls the decisions of a lot of these things are market makers and algorithms and, and, frequency tra and high frequency traders in the market and they use technical indicators as a basis for almost all of their decisions. And so a lot of these uh, quant programs uh, are programmed by humans and humans are looking at the technicals um, and very little, if any, have fundamental basis 
uh, and they are almost all speculative, which yeah. makes the cryptocurrency markets a beautiful market to trade because you're basically trading on emotion. You're trading on fear and greed and, and those two emotions and hope, right? And those two emotions uh, are very, very profitable to trade off of and very uh, easy to trade off of because there's such, there's such a reactive, uh, it's such a reactive method of trading. Yeah, I want to get into that. That's an important piece that I wanted to touch on. But before we do, so back to your original tweet you talked about where the best investors are traders or, or, or traders shouldn't invest like investors and investors not like traders. But I think um, there's one common trait that I like and you had talked about um, having that thesis. And so I, what I like that I see with traders is traders are getting in, looking to get in at a certain entry and out at a certain exit. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of investors, maybe a lot of times, like you said, it's not it's easier, maybe right. So they just buy Amazon because it's going to go up, or I'm going to buy Bitcoin because it's going to go up, or whatever. But they don't really think about the exit. Like, at what point should I take a profit? What's my thesis? Do I believe that when I bought Amazon in 1997, did I believe that e-commerce was going to change the world and Amazon would be the leader? If so, I wait that long, or do I think um, I'm buying it Bitcoin at 10,000 a day and it's going to go to 20,000? I'm going to sell out there, right? So. What do you think about that, uh, that investing thesis that, in, that I guess investors could learn from traders? Well, it's, it, that, that's, a, that's a hard thing to really judge, right? When is the best time to sell, right? Because people, people that bought it at 20,000, what if Bitcoin goes to a million dollars? They're going to look like a genius, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm working on this post or, or this, this article. Basically, uh, I, did a, I did a tweet a, a, about a week ago that said, given enough time, Bitcoin is an asset that makes everyone look like a genius, no matter where they bought it at. And the whole concept is looking at every bubble of Bitcoin and everybody who bought at the top, no matter how high, you know, at the very tippy top is a genius. Uh, unless you bought at 20,000, but we are rapidly approaching that we are going to make them geniuses too. And so if you bought at $100 before a 90% crash down to, you know, a dollar, you're still a genius because even if you held a 99% drawdown and, and it went all the way to the current price now at $10,000, you still made a hundred X return on your money, hundred dollars to 10,000. If you bought at, you know, $2,000, you bought at $5,000, if you bought at $20,000, I think in five years, if, 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 and when Bitcoin gets to $250,000, you're still going to look like an incredible genius because you've just 10 X your money. You've made hundred percent on your money in one of the fastest growing asset classes. And so that's really hard to say because holding, holding Bitcoin, I know it's become a meme, is very, very difficult. Uh, they, they say it's super easy, but it's actually really, really difficult. You have to have the gut and the fortitude of, you know, a, a mercenary, right? You have to yeah. really be able to hold through some massive drawdowns. Bitcoin went from 20,000 to 3,000. Most people capitulated. We, you could see the um, it's called the the day the decay of of um, it's like basically the time of decay for Bitcoin holders and and it's basically the the amount of new money that comes in the amount of old uh, Bitcoin that gets exchanged and it had the highest volume at three thousand two hundred and I I think a lot of the old holders who bought at you know five hundred thousand dollars I think they capitulated at thirty two hundred because I thought I think they thought it was going to go much much lower and so it's really interesting because if you believe in the thesis and you believe that you know Bitcoin can become a world currency, the sky is really the limit because now you're talking $700, $800 trillion in derivative assets and you're talking uh, the, you know, the monetary supply of uh, the UK, the British pound, the, the US dollar and all that stuff. So 
having an exit in mind for Bitcoin is very tough. I think that's probably one of the hardest assets to really kind of uh, peg down. As a trader, you can definitely figure out when you want to time in, time out. And one of my thesis that I've always held true, and one thing that saved me in 2017 was, if an investment or a trade, if you take profits and it's enough to change your life or change the circumstances of your life for the better are on the table, I would always recommend at least taking that because you never know what's going to happen. You never know, you know, tomorrow the whole uh, landscape could change with regulations, fiat on ramps, all this different things. And your investment that is, you know, basically set you up for life or set you up for the next 10, 15 years to be able to live life to the fullest, have the freedom you want, retire from your job, you know, give you time to find a new job. If you don't take that, uh, then, then it's always going to, it's always going to be in the back of your mind. It's always going to beat you up if it, if it crashes or if the price turns around. And I think the biggest thing about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is FOMO, the fear of missing out. I see people buying at the bottoms of, you know, every single dip, every single dip, every single dip, because they're so afraid of missing that one candle that, you know, goes up a thousand to 2000%. But the markets don't move like that. Bottoms don't form off of, um, you know, off of just one single candle. Typically, bottoms take, you know, time to form. And so, and there's always time to enter into an uptrending market. I think you have a very famous quote of uh, Rockefeller where he says he made the most money not by getting in too early or getting out, you know, getting in at the bottom or getting out at the top. He always made his money in the middle by just following the trend and then exiting before the, before the top was formed. So that's kind of my investing thesis for Bitcoin. I know, you know, where my exit points are. I know where my entry points are. And, you know, for me, it's, it's about, you know, making enough money to, to form freedom, but I do have a, a portion of it where I just never touch it. Right. Because my thesis is that Bitcoin could eventually take over as a global reserve currency. It's the best competition we've ever seen against the dollar and the dollar is, is the best currency on the, in the world. And I don't think that, and I think that Bitcoin has a good chance as long as the technology continues to evolve. But, you know, that's my thesis and I, and I can't recommend it for everybody. Now you mentioned um, you mentioned how uh, people are trying to FOMO in at the bottom and they're trying to capture that candle, catching knives, as we like to say. Um, it's it seems like it's really hard for people to be either a trader or an investor because it goes against our own human intentions, right? Like we just want to we we want to we want pleasure, we want to get away from pain. Um, and I know you've talked a lot about how actually technical analysis actually plays along with that human emotion, you think, right? Like the mathematical formulas somehow can predict that human emotion cycle. Yeah. So uh, Fibonacci is a perfect example. I've been studying Fibonacci uh, just in nature, but also applied to the markets and, and sentiment. I created my own Fibonacci uh, sequence. It's called the Canfield Fibonacci sequence. It's a, it's a, a sequence of uh, numbers that apply to long-term investing thesis. Um, you can Google that online, but Fibonacci is really, really interesting because those Fibonacci levels, the 61.8% ratio, the 78.6 ratio, I believe that these are measurements of human emotion. When something is in a rally, it shows you exactly how euphoric people can be. And it turns around at specific um, Fibonacci extension levels because it shows you how exuberant a group of or people can be or a cohort or a population. And then the retracements are showing exactly how fearful people can be, how, how much are people willing to sell down. And those ratios, um, I think, are a direct reflection of human emotion. And, and it quantifies human emotion. It quantifies reactionary, uh, re reactionary 
into into markets and obviously you can say it's you know self-fulfilling prophecy it could be algorithms that trade off of those levels um you know chicken or the egg type of thing are we measuring human emotion are we measuring uh just quantifiable data that algorithms are using you know uh, you can it can go one way or the other but yeah, I believe yeah, that we have, we have the human emotion piece, which I like to say volatility, price going up and down, is the difference between perception and reality. And so we perceive something to be like it, when Bitcoin hit 20,000, we perceived it to be way further ahead, like it was ready to take over the world, but the reality is it wasn't. And so perception had to come down, price had to come down, but then it overcorrected. So then Bitcoin made massive advancements in uh, regulation and technology and adoption, but then the perception, the perceived value was really low. And so this, it went too far and, and it, and it keep, keeps going back and forth. And I, and I guess uh, what I like to say about that is also what you're saying with the Fibonacci's. And so um, that's how it's reacting between perception and reality. Yeah. Uh more, more based on uh, like fear and greed and, uh, you know, euphoria, like right. I would say, I would say fear and euphoria are kind of the two emotions that uh, are the, you know, the most uh, applicable to trading and investing. When everyone is euphoric, that's when I, you know, typically like to try and find my exit points. And when everyone is depressed or angry or fearful, that's the best time to buy. And we, and we hear, and we hear that all the time, like buy when people are, fe buy when people are fearful, sell when people are greedy, but it's really hard to know that. But you're saying that you think you can track that using these Fibonacci's, right? Absolutely. Well, you can also track it based on, um, you can do, you can do a quant study based on emotion. Uh, you can do a quant study based on, you know, like the index, the fear and index greed, um, when to buy based on specific numbers, and you can actually do a calculation. What if you bought, you know, when the fear and index greed hits 10, you know, what is the price of, you know, X, uh, you know, what is the price of Bitcoin five days after, 10 days after, 20 days after? And you can actually quantify that data and, and build a trading thesis around it or a trading plan or an investing plan, um, just like you can do with uh, the way that the markets are move up and move down. Um, so, yeah, th that's you can definitely apply emotion and sentiment to markets. Uh, the problem is when you get into Ill illiquid markets, sometimes there is no bottom. And that's, what's, that's what we call price discovery. The, the bottom can sometimes be zero. Um, and we saw this in the, in the dot-com era. And we saw this in the altcoin market where, yes, it's good to buy blood, but it's good to buy blood on something that has a fundamental basis. Like you said, cash flow, assets, Etc. Where you know if it goes down 80, 90 percent, you know that it has a fundamental uh, thesis behind it, and so that's something where you can try and buy the blood or buy the buy the buy the uh, try and buy the bottoms or cost average near the bottom. Whereas some things just don't have a bottom because there's no fundamental uh, thesis that holds them up. There's no cash flow. The project is dead. The developers have abandoned it. There's no there's no liquidity. It gets delisted from exchanges. There's lots of fundamental reasons why you should not trade. And that's the problem that I see with a lot of traders that came from the 2017 markets is they see these altcoins that went up eight, nine hundred thousand percent, and they're just trying to buy the bottom of a market that might not have a bottom. Or the bottom is at zero. <laughs> yeah, or the, or the bottom is at zero. We saw, we saw a lot of coins on Bittrex that used to have incredible uh, price reactions uh, when you got to those all-time low levels, but it broke the all-time lows. And you know, there was like six or seven projects that went to one Satoshi. That was the bottom, one Satoshi. And then they got delisted. So now there's absolutely no liquidity. So you have to be really careful about what you're investing in. You, met, you want to make sure that there's enough liquidity to actually trade it or invest in it because 
you want to be able to exit a position. You don't want to be stuck in a position where you can't exit it. Like I made the mistake of buying into a, like a privacy project on um, what's, what's it called? Uh, Cryptopia and Cryptopia got hacked and their exchange went down and that was the only place for liquidity. So with that investment, I couldn't, or, you know, with that trade, I couldn't exit my position. So that's why now I look for things that have four, five, six, seven, eight exchanges. And then I hold my trader, I hold my investment, if it's a longer term play onto my wallet, where then I can create an account on one of these six exchanges. And so I'm not dependent on one of these areas. And so that's kind of how it applies to crypto specifically is you really don't want to keep all your eggs on in one basket, whether that's an exchange um, or, you know, yeah. Yeah. Now back to the uh, fear and greed and the Fibonacci's and whatnot. Um, I, I, I tend to, uh, I tend to agree with you on that just cause I've seen it play out over and over, but what about like bigger macroeconomic events? Like sometimes it's almost seemed like it's lined up with bigger events that like would be outside of fear and greed, almost black swan events, but like, there's like this like unique timing or, or coincidence sometimes. Uh, Jesse Livermore, arguably one of the best traders who's ever lived. He has a, an incredible uh, book that he wrote back in like the 1930s, 1940s. Um, he believes everything is priced into the market, even black swans. All, everything is priced in. Uh, and it's even more so now in the information age where information uh, is transmitted, you know, so quickly and spreads so fast virally through social networks. But I've seen it time and time and time again where, you know, technical indicators, it's showing, you know, a wedge pattern or a symmetrical triangle, or it's showing like a massive bearish divergence where it's, you know, everything's lining up and then out comes the news story where it then creates this catalyst that plays out perfectly with technical analysis. And, you know, you're in the right side of the trade, the market tanks, you're, you know, you're shorting the market. And it's like, you know, you see people going, man, wow, how the hell did you know that was going to happen? It's like, well, the technical analysis showed that this was, you know, this was the outcome that we were going to see. And sometimes it just takes the news story to kind of push it that way. The other, the other side of that, and I've done a lot of back, back testing research. Some people might remember I had a CNBC chart showing the profitability of counter trading uh, CNBC's headline tweets, basically like every time they were uh, super euphoric was at the very top of a peak. If you had shorted every tweet where they had posted that, you would have made an incredible amount of money. And if you had long on every time they said Bitcoin is dead, you would have again made a lot of money. And so I do see times where you see like on CNBC or Fox or CNN on the market analysis where for whatever reason, they are putting out news stories that are completely uh, contra indicators to what, what's going to happen in the markets. Uh, they put out like super bearish news stories right at the bottom of a market where it's like the technical indicators are showing reversal. And it's for me, it's sometimes I wonder if if big money, smart money is just trying to you know build their liquidity. So they have, you know, they create panic or, so or they, maybe, maybe it's not so sinister. Maybe it's that um, they're chasing news headlines, right? They're trying to get viewers. And so they're picking up the most euphoric story to run. So like okay. it's, it's an indicator of where fear and greed is because everyone's so greedy that's making news. So they're finally, hey, we should run this. Everyone's greedy right now. Um, and maybe that's why it is. Maybe. Yeah, I guess, I guess my take is a little bit more conspiratorial or cynical and yours is just a little bit more, uh, make, more logical, I guess. Uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely well, quite possibly the it. case. I mean, I, I asked CNBC themselves like about it and they say, well, you know, we're just, we, we just 
tweet what's in the market, you know, but my, my issue is these are trained analysts, trained investors, you know, uh, Jim Cramer, he ran a hedge fund. There's a really famous YouTube video about him talking about how he used news stories to build positions, either short liquidity or long liquidity. Um, and he said, you know, he, he would just send out a little, uh, tip to uh, Reuters or Bloomberg or one of the analysts over there about, you know, uh, a rating that's going to happen on, you know, one of the stocks or whatever. And so for me, just the way, understanding the way that the markets work and understanding the way that uh, these, these fund managers kind of build positions and everything is about profit to them. So, uh, you know, the retail trader is insignificant to what they're trying to achieve. Their, their bottom line is to their, their investors and to their shareholders. And so I would probably, I, I definitely look at the market as more of a conspiratorial. Yeah. I want to go back to something that you mentioned before. Everything is priced into the market. Um, I had uh, ran a tweet uh, maybe a week ago where I basically said, uh, everyone's talking about um, the, the halving coming up. Uh, they're talking about backed coming out, which they finally released uh, that they're coming out in September. Um, and, and everyone's talking about this. And, and then there's like a lot of talk about uh, front running that price, um, which maybe doesn't mean the price is already is the price is already in the market, but that it's coming in. And I got into a debate with a guy about the the happening, uh, the research that's been done by Plan B, 100 trillion about um, the price going up on the happening, which is coming up next year. And so, with with events like backs or with events like uh, the happening, I mean, don't you think like everyone is front running that. So at some point that price is like almost every price is already in the market. Basically what you said. The question is who is everyone, right? So Bitcoin, the market cap is insignificant. Uh, gold is 14 trillion. Uh, Bitcoin and the entire cryptocurrency market market cap isn't even at a trillion dollars yet. So it's, it's so small that I don't think that, I mean, we're a small population of people. And so, yeah, maybe people that are priced in right now are front running it. The, the beautiful thing about trends is short-term trends are manipulatable. You can manipulate them. Mid-term trends, somewhat manipulatable. In a market like crypto, for sure. But long-term trends, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, those are not manipulatable. It takes way too much money to manipulate a trend that goes that long. And so the data is there that shows exactly what has happened every prior time. And uh, you're a fan of history. It doesn't, you know, repeat, but it often rhymes. And so all you can do is really use that data to make a, your best educated guess as to what's going to happen in the future. Nobody has a crystal ball, no analyst. Um, I mean, you can, you know, that's true because 2008, very, very few people, there was a movie, the big short where only a handful of firms made billions of dollars off that, off that short. Um, and everybody else was caught blindsided. The same thing is true with Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin is going to blindside a lot of people. I think that uh, nobody really has any clue. And I know that because I've been in the market for three and a half years and I've kind of rubbed shoulders with the top developers, the top traders, the top investors, the top hedge fund managers that are in cryptocurrencies. Nobody really has any, any clue what Bitcoin is capable of, especially in a recession, especially uh, with all these trade talks, especially with all this stuff. So I, I don't know that, you, sure, you can you know, estimate what's going to happen with the halving, but Bitcoin is a deflationary currency. And, it's, and, and as you did a podcast with Mark Yusko, it's schmuck insurance against, uh, against, a, uh, uh, against this, the system. And we just, we, we're at $22 trillion in debt or $24 trillion, whatever. I can't even remember the number. It's going up so fast. We just don't know what 
the potential of Bitcoin is. And I think the most important thing that I've learned is it's cheaper to own it and not need it than it is to need it and not own it. I sure. think that that's, you know, that that's the kind of the way that I view Bitcoin is it is insurance because you just don't know the potential or how valuable it's going to be until you need it. Right. So yeah. in Satoshi's uh, white paper for Bitcoin, uh, the creator of Bitcoin, he, he wrote a white paper and in the white paper, he said, um, not exactly, but he said, uh, wouldn't it make sense to get some just in case it catches on or something like that? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't it make sense just to get some just in case is what he said. And that's kind of what you're saying. Uh, the, the insurance. I like that. Great. Well, uh, I know we're running long here. Uh, let's uh, just ask maybe one more question. So uh, for those people that are listening and you know, they're not sure where they're at, uh, investing, trading, uh, like you said, in, in trading, it can be very difficult. It takes a lot of IQ. Um, but for people who think they would want to try and do better than just buying and holding blindly, uh, what would you recommend for them? I mean, should they stay away from trying to buy in and out at all? Or is there some really basic stuff they could do? Or what would you recommend? Yeah. So um, first off, I, I would recommend at least trying to learn technical analysis because it makes investing so much easier when you can actually, you know, be able to look at a chart, understand where the trend lines are, where, where the uh, support and resistance is. Um, and for me, the easiest and most uh, brain dead strategy is buy when it's above the 200 day moving average and sell when we break the 200 day moving average. That strategy is just so simplistic. And obviously you don't have to sell right when it crosses the 200 day moving average. It's a lagging indicator, but it's such a simplistic way to, uh, to be safe, to be on the safer side because when it breaks that 200 day moving average, typically the intermediate, the, the midterm trend is up. And once we break that 200 day moving average, typically it has, you know, six, especially Bitcoin, uh, you know, six to 18 months of a, of a nice uptrend. And it just keeps you at, it keeps you out of trying to buy every single bottom trying to time. The other aspect is, um, as you know, dollar cost averaging, but my, my, my strategy is not dollar cost averaging at any point in time. I try and dollar cost average as close as possible to the 200 weekly moving average because that is a historically a very, very strong reversal point on in any market. Um, and so when, when you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin actually bottomed out at the 3200 level on the 200 weekly moving average. And so did Amazon. Amazon pulled back 40%, 200 weekly moving average is where it bounced. Uh, the S&P 500, 200 weekly moving average. And so if you can dollar cost average uh, as close to possible as that 200 weekly moving average, um, I think that's where, that's where most of the money can be captured as, as close to the bottom as possible. And, uh, and when you break that 200 weekly moving average to the downside, um, that's where it, it, you may be entering a price discovery mode. And I would, um, I would wait until that's recaptured before I would really start putting a lot more money in. Um, so to summarize it, you think uh, the average person could start by just learning one simple thing, like a moving average strategy, and yeah. maybe just try to like get good at that before they overcomplicate things? I think that, uh, so I've, I've run the gamut, right? When I started, I started in options, and options is pretty complex. You have to learn all these different strategies, the straddle, the, the iron condor. I mean, there's all kinds of different names for them. Uh, hedging, uh, you know, buying longs and puts at the same time, breaking, I mean, all kinds of different stuff. 
Then I went into, you know, price action trading. Then I went into uh, indicator analysis. And then I went into geometric, uh, sacred geometry, like GAN analysis, fractal analysis, fractal energy. I mean, all kinds of different stuff. And after all that, 10 years of learning all these crazy things and paying probably $100,000 to mentors and courses and all, my strategy has really just come down to really, really simple things. RSI, moving averages, support and resistance. I mean, that's basically all I use for almost everything. And then I've just built a strategy and a system around it that gives me a better edge than 50%. So yeah, so I've, after going through all that stuff, really, and what I would really say is find one thing and master it, whether it's RSI, whether it's moving averages, find a guy who wrote a book on moving averages, find a guy who's made you know, millions of dollars on just moving averages and study it. What most people do is they hop from system to system to system to system, and they never really take enough time to master that one thing. Um, you know, and that, that's what I would say is just focus on one indicator. One makes strategy. me think of that, uh, Bruce Lee quote, right? Like, uh, I fear the man who's practiced one one kick 10,000 times, not 10,000 kicks one time or something like that. Exactly. And that's, that's the problem with, I see with most traders, they literally just hop system to system, to system, to system. And they never, they never master any one thing. But I think the biggest thing is, you know, they hop to all these different systems because they're trying to find a system that fits for them. And that, like I said, skill level, time commitment, um, you know, most traders, they come in and they only have an hour a day, you know, they're part-time, they're working they're, you know, and maybe some, some people that are listening, you know, they're, they're, they're at, you know, they have jobs, they have families, they can't sit in front of a trading terminal 12 to 18 hours a day like I can. Um, and I think that's a big part of, of finding those systems. Great. Yeah. That's uh that's, that's good advice right there. Just look at the moving average, learn one thing. I know you've, you've, like you said, you've kind of boiled it down to three or four things that you're good at. Now we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Now I know you uh, just put out something on trading view that rapidly rose to the ranks, number one on trading view. And it kind of actually shows when to buy and sell using just maybe two strategies. So recommend people to go check that out on trading view. I think you also have like a real kind of like introductory course on TA that people can jump into. You want to just talk about where people can find out more about you? Yeah, uh, I released this course. It's called the 21 Day Crypto Trader Challenge. And what it is, is it's, a, it's 21 days of, of study to learn how to trade cryptocurrencies. And what it was is it's not designed to create, to make you into this advanced uh, trader. It's, it's really designed to just create a foundation of knowledge. And so the biggest thing that I see is most people, they jump into trying to learn technical analysis. And technical analysis is one part of about eight parts of, of a good trader. Uh, the other parts that I think are even more important are uh, psychology, discipline, uh, risk management. Risk management is very key. There's an entire module on risk management when it comes down to, uh, you know, basically uh, win-loss ratio, your position sizing, um, all those different things, and then tracking your trades. And so what I did was I put this 21 day crypto trader challenge and I priced it very, very affordably. I wanted everybody to be able to, uh, to join and it's only a hundred bucks. And what it does, is it just gives you everything you need to know about how to, you know, how to basically build a foundation of knowledge for trading. And then what you can do is you can take all that information and then start to learn the more advanced strategies, like actual, how to build out a trading plan, but you at least you're introduced to all these concepts and you can master the foundation or the, the, you know, the building blocks, and then you can go out and become really, really good traders. So yeah, cryptotradingchallenge.com. Uh, we do one once about every three months. Uh, we take on a bunch of traders, they go through the course, and then we do a live Q&A session afterwards. Cool. And uh, TradingView is just uh, Jacob Canfield, I think. 
tradingview.com slash you slash Jacob Canfield. Um, and then yeah, Twitter, Jacob Canfield. Cool. All right. Thanks so much, Jacob. Appreciate you coming on. It's great talking to you. Thanks guys. Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.